Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, John discussed the post-hiatus opening statements to the jury and began his review of the witnesses who testified in person when the trial resumed after the pandemic hiatus. Those testimonies included two of three early witnesses who knew Kathy Durst and offered context for Kathy's actions and behavior around the time of her disappearance. In this episode, Lewin speaks about the testimony of Helen Block, the third of those early witnesses who knew Kathy. Lewin also describes the impact of several other state witnesses, including ER physician Leslie Hain, Kathy Durst friend Fadwa Najami, and Susan Berman friend and former Saturday Night Live cast member Lorraine Newman. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes you will hear heavy traffic rushing by. That's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes, at the end of this episode, I will list the episodes from the Jury Duty podcast that cover these parts of the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Finally, when John mentions Habib and Ethan, he is referring to his co-counsel in the Durst trial, Deputy DAs Habib Balian and Ethan Milius. We now rejoin my conversation with John Lewin as he speaks about the testimony of Helen Block, the third of the early witnesses who knew Kathy Durst. Lewin offered an abbreviated description of Helen Block's impact in episode 13 of this season, and we covered her testimony in season two, bonus episode two of this podcast. Tell me about the testimony of Helen Block. Helen is just an absolute hero in this case. So when the trial was starting, let's go back to January, February, et cetera. I don't have myself, I don't have a, a lot of interests. I like news, politics, sports, cars, and dogs. That's it. I don't have any hobbies, et cetera. So I keep up. I'm a news junkie. I was aware of the situation with COVID. And by the time that we were starting trial, so if we go way back, as I bought, as far as I know, 
I might have bought one of the first masks of anybody because in December, Ethan and I, December of 2019, Ethan and I were working on the opening statement. We worked on it for months, the original. And Ethan got really sick, and we had to work right next to each other. So I don't worry about getting sick, but because of my wife's surgical schedule, if she gets sick and the kids are coming from generally internationally to get their surgeries, if she's sick and can't do it, she doesn't have openings for years. And so that kid's in huge trouble. So I have an obligation not to get sick. So Ethan is sick as can be, which, by the way, in hindsight, maybe he had COVID, although I don't know. I think he will say that it was COVID. I don't think it was. But I ended up going into CBS and buying a mask for each of us to wear. So Ethan and I are sitting there, and we are putting this thing together um, in 2000, you know, late in December, et cetera. So I knew that this COVID thing was coming, and this is one of the reasons why I'm the one that pushed to have so many alternates, because I thought we were going to end up being interrupted our trial. Now, I thought the interruption was going to be a few weeks, and the big goal was to try to make it through jury selection to get the jury done and through opening. So fast forward, we did opening, I want to say, I remember the last day of court that we had was Thursday, March 12th, and we were supposed to come back Monday, March 16th. Helen Block was supposed to testify that next week, and this is when COVID was hitting and brutalizing New York. Helen is an ER doctor. She was working at one of the absolute worst-hit COVID hospitals in Queens. She was in the middle of it. And she is, by that time, she's in her 60s, so, you know, definitely at risk. And I'm talking to her, and she's telling me they don't have enough PPEs there. And she says, listen, I'm, I'm more than willing to come out next week. But just so you know, I've definitely been exposed. And I just want to make sure you know that. So on that Thursday, I had told the court that we were requesting, we made an oral request to be able to do her examination remotely because of the COVID issue. The judge granted our motion subject to having more discussion in court, and then we filed a written motion after that. That was Thursday. By Friday, if I recall, the courts had shut down. So Helen Block was willing in the midst of here she is risking her life, you know, fighting COVID without proper protection when she could have, you know, retired. She didn't have to do it. And then her concern was about us. I mean, she truly is a hero. In terms of her relevance to the case, Helen not only was a close friend of Kathy's, but I believe Helen is the person who saw Kathy with the sunglasses in the cafeteria at Einstein and saw the bruising on her eyes and was there for the conversation where Kathy, without directly saying it, made it clear that it was her husband who had been abusing her. So Helen's testimony, in addition to she knew Kathy, they were friends, about Kathy's reputation Einstein, the normal stuff about, you know, what it was like being a woman, that you wouldn't just call in sick, that you 
would not be calling the dean, that you would certainly call the program that the rotation you were supposed to report to. Helen also had the added bonus, one of the few people who had actually seen actual evidence of domestic violence involving Kathy. Now, remember, Bob's already admitted to, you know, striking her repeatedly, but he would always say, you know, he never did anything, he never left any marks, he always minimized it. So her testimony, I thought, was extremely powerful. She was a wonderful witness. So that's what I remember about her. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the next part of today's conversation, John discusses the testimonies of ER physician Leslie Hain, a house cleaner for the Durst's Janet Fink Shaw, Kathy Durst friend Fadwa Najami, and Susan Berman friend and former Saturday Night Live cast member Lorraine Newman. We also hear a brief description of the reason for the testimony of forensic financial expert Eric Van Dorn. Again, at the end of the episode, we'll let you know where you can find jury duty's in-depth coverage of each of these witness testimonies. Now we can go to Leslie Hain. So Leslie Hain was the ER doctor who examined Kathy at Jacoby on January 6th, you know, three weeks before Kathy disappeared, three and a half weeks before she disappeared. Kathy had gone in. She had not said that she was a medical student. This is a hospital that is affiliated with the medical school. So this is where you get your services. So Kathy goes in there because that's where go when you're sick, and she's reporting what happened. She does not indicate that she's a medical student, and she does not specifically say that it was her husband who hit her. But most importantly, she says she was struck in the face, and Leslie saw the injury. Now, what I remember about the cross-examination, and this was just an example where I could not believe it, Dick literally gets up there and starts saying, asking her, well, you've seen a lot worse than that, right? He he minimized the domestic violence as if, well, that's really nothing. And again, like a lot of the defense's strategy and version and kind of theory of the case, you know, it was as if they were trying this case in the 1950s and they were going to blame this, you know, aggressive, you know, greedy, social climbing, you know, wife who was trying to take advantage of her wealthy husband and who was a drug addict and a slut. No consideration that it was 2021 and 2020 and how that was going to be perceived by our jury, which included a woman who was basically Kathy. So that's what I remember about Leslie's testimony. Janet Fink Shaw? Oh, so Janet was very reluctant to testify, was very, very concerned about COVID in 2020. And in fact, she was probably right. She was really concerned about how spreadable it was, what the precautions were. 
and did not want to testify. We ended up getting her in. She was Bob and Kathy's maid, in essence. Not maid, but she cleaned the cabin while she was in high school. It was like a part-time job. And then she ended up becoming close friends with Kathy. So she also liked Bob. And what she was able to testify about was she was able to discuss Bob and Kathy's relationship, what she saw. She had a lot of conversations with Kathy during all the problems. And she was an ear witness to some domestic violence. She also had a very good relationship with Bob, obviously liked him, and she provided some damaging testimony about some conversations that she and Bob had after Kathy disappeared that were on the surface, not what you would expect of a guy whose wife was missing. So I thought she had a lot of powerful testimony that was very effective. One of my favorite witnesses was Fadwa Najami. So Fadwa Najami, so if we back up, Fadwa's sister Gilberta was Kathy's close friend at Western Connecticut State. And Gilberta was also very likely in love with Kathy. And Gilberta very much believed that Bob had killed Kathy and was instrumental in really putting up the pressure on Bob afterwards. But unfortunately, Gilberta had a lot of personal issues, a lot of credibility issues outside of the case, a lot of substance abuse problems, and he ended up passing away before we filed the case. And so, one, Gilberta had been the last person to see Kathy alive, other than Bob, of course, because Kathy had come over to her place in Connecticut, you know, about 45 minutes an hour from South Salem, where that Bob and Kathy were at the lake house that weekend. And so she was the person that would have told that story. Because she was deceased, we were fortunate enough to have her younger sister, who had also been there and who had heard enough parts of the phone conversation and could testify to Kathy's demeanor, et cetera. We got two bonuses out of Fadwa that we never would have known prior to interviewing her. And that is, number one, we discovered that she had spent years as a drug counselor and domestic violence abuse counselor. So, shockingly, the defense on cross-examination tried to go after her and tried to make it sound like, you know, Kathy was not being abused. It's that she was, you know, a drug addict and was under the influence, et cetera. And I remember that Fodwood just destroyed them on cross. It was an example of so many witnesses in this case where the defense got up there, thought they were going to knock somebody out, and then found themselves on the floor with their heads spinning, not knowing what hit them. Well, one of the things that I found particularly compelling and impressive about Fadwa was that she countered the narrative that really I think had been spun perhaps as much by Susan Berman as Bob, that the party that Kathy went to at the Najami's home was actually a cocaine crazy party. And Fadwa countered that incredibly impressively by talking about her parents' presence there and her parents' standards. And she also diffused the cocaine issue by saying, yeah, we did cocaine recreationally, but we would never do it around our parents. And well, but, but, but 
But let's take a step back for a second, though, because this is one of the issues. So what an attorney needs to do is they say, okay, I would like to portray Kathy Durst as a drug addict. The reason I want to portray her as a drug addict, and you need to have a reason, is either I want to make her less sympathetic, which is actually not particularly ethical, but it's certainly done. It's not relevant. Or I want to do that because I'm then going to explain that Kathy disappearing is a result of her drugs and not some criminal activity by my client. Now, the problem with that, if you think it out, is that, okay, even if that's why she disappeared, it wouldn't explain where her body is. But they decided that they wanted to make Kathy out to be a drug addict. And the problem is, is that if you do your homework and you go through the records, you would quickly come to the conclusion that that is a dog that will not touch. You cannot do it. It will not work. And the reason it will not work is that you have Kathy's performance in her rotation at the time that you're going to be making these allegations. And it just doesn't work. Kathy was doing much, much better. The worst part of her academic performance was in 80 and 81, and it was very clear when that was going on, it was because Bob was abusing her. So one of the things that never made sense strategically is that the defense literally decided, we're going to make Kathy a drug addict, which wasn't true. But worse than that, they never seemed to get to part two, which is, okay, if we do that, what is that going to show? How are we going to use this? They had no plan. So they decided to use a theory that wasn't true, but that even if it was true, wouldn't explain any of the evidence. So let's assume for a moment, and so a part of that is, we're going to make this out to be a drug party. Let's assume for a second that that was true, which it wasn't. How does that help their case of explaining what happened to Kathy? Kathy leaves that party. She goes home. So it's yet another example of we're going to just kind of take the easy way. Here's a bright object, like a baby in a crib. Ooh, red thing. And they just reach for it instead of going, what is it? And they just put it in their mouth and suck on it, and it doesn't really go anywhere. So that was the problem with the whole Kathy's a drug addict was it didn't fit any narrative or theory that they have. But, yes, she absolutely eliminated that idea but even if she hadn't, it was a dead-end street. It wasn't going anywhere. Okay, Lorraine Newman. So Lorraine Newman was, I thought, a very important witness for a number of reasons. Lorraine Newman, first of all, was obviously a famous person in her own right. She's one of the original not-ready-for-prime-time players when they started SNL in 75. I was a kid when that came on, but I knew the show very well. You know, watched every episode. I knew who Lorraine was. One of the things I ended up learning about the case is that Lorraine ended up having, and this is the difference between what we did and what the defense did. I ended up finding out, not from Lorraine, I just went and I Googled all the material, and I found out that Lorraine had a very long, I want to say like a giant audio book, and I want to say it was like 20 hours. And it was published um, in either 2020 or 2021. And I went and I got that book. And I listened to the whole thing, you know, while the trial was going on, because if there's any information about any witness that I have, I'm going to listen to it. 
I don't think the defense ever even knew or even did the work to find out that, yep, here is a long autobiography by this woman. So what was interesting about Lorraine is that, first of all, just her backstory, she was the youngest Saturday Night Live character. And I grew up kind of the consensus for people who were not, you know, just like fans, and it was very unfair, is that Lorraine was kind of the least talented. She and Garrett Morris, you know, never had the kind of acclaim that Chevy Chase or Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, et cetera, that they had. And what I learned listening to this audiobook is Lorraine was extremely talented in a variety of ways. And I learned, which I'd never known, was that when she came in, she was the youngest person in the cast by a lot. And that the way it works at SNL is you really need to have writers who were writing for you, who were trying to figure out characters for you. And she never had that. So I ended up listening to the whole thing, really got to know who she was from the podcast, really felt like I knew her from that podcast. And she's really bright. She's also very shy, and she had, which she covered in her podcast, she had a history of cocaine problems going back many, many years. So when Lorraine was originally interviewed in January of 2001, this is a few weeks after Susan has been killed, Bob Durst is not even a suspect. He's not even anybody anyone's looking at. She was never asked any questions about Bob Durst, and she herself never put it together at the time that Bob maybe had done this. So she was aware of the fact that Susan had told her about an alibi. But number one, she did not connect that up to Susan's death. And number two, she did not want to get involved in this case. Absolutely did not want to get involved. So like many witnesses that you will find, is that they're not going to lie to you. If you ask them the right question, they will answer it honestly. But if you don't ask them the exact right question, they're not going to tell you because they don't want to get involved. So the problem was that originally, Lorraine was never asked the right question. So she ends up, we end up interviewing her, and she ends up giving us the fact that Susan had told her that, you know, she had pretended to be Kathy and called Einstein. And David Chesnoff handled the cross. And I thought it was one of the most ineffective pieces of work the defense did in the trial. They had one of three ways to go with Lorraine. Either she's lying, either she's mistaken, or she is not lying or mistaken. Susan was lying when she told her that. Now, there are strong reasons why I've said before that the best of those three is that Susan was lying. That's the best you've got. It's it's not a great scenario, but it's the best you have. What you cannot do is argue anything more than one of those three because they are mutually exclusive. So Chesnoff gets up on cross, I'll never forget. She was terrific, by the way. And he starts off by basically trying to impugn her credibility. So he's asking questions like, well, you were interviewed in January. You never said this, and you never said that, and you didn't bring this up until this. So very clear that you're alleging that she's a liar. He then switches to her drug use. Wasn't it true that you used a bunch of drugs? Yeah, and that affects your memory. And one of the things that I still don't think Chesnoff understands is that cocaine does not create memories you don't have. Long-term drug use, generally, what it makes you do is it makes you forget the memories you have. It doesn't create memories that were not there. So people who are long-term drug users, it's not that their memory is faulty. It's that they just don't remember things. Now, an exception might be for people who are using hallucinogens. 
and she was not. That was not something that she used. So Chesnoff really played it up that, you know, well, you know, you, you said it about your memory, and, you know, you talked about all the drugs you used, et cetera. And then in the same 20 minutes of cross-examination, he goes to number three. Well, Susan lied a lot, didn't she? And I was just flabbergasted and shocked that he did not understand that you cannot argue three completely inconsistent theories with the same witness in such a short period of time. So she blew him up. It was ugly. Just destroyed him. Again, I just sat there in amazement. Was there anything in her book or podcast that you learned that you used at trial? What I learned was that she was very, very, very smart. She also has a wonderful sense of humor. And although she is shy, and that was my impression of her, in the podcast, she was not shy. And so knowing what she was like and having listened to her so much, I think I was able to present her in a way that was more effective than it would have been had I not listened to the whole podcast. Eric Van Dorn. So Eric Van Dorn was the FBI. He's a CPA who works for the FBI. And the point of Eric was basically to explain to the jury what structuring of money is and how Bob was structuring money and when he was doing it. So it wasn't glamorous, but it was basically the foundation behind, you know, our theory of, hey, Bob decided on this date you'll see him structuring money. Structuring money is where you're basically making transactions with banks and you try to do it for less than $10,000 so that there won't be any record of it. But in actuality, it doesn't really work that way. So we could show that when Bob was structuring money, that he was doing so in an attempt to flee and that this was a pattern in his life at different times. So Eric was very helpful with that. And it just kind of set the tone for what he was doing. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment as John Lewin talks about the testimonies of Robert Durst's housekeeper, Elizabeth Jones, Susan Berman's daughter, Mella Kaufman, and Durst pal and the king of all hostile witnesses, Doug Oliver. In the event that you would like to revisit the witness testimonies that Lewin discusses, you can find our coverage of state's witnesses Leslie Hain and Helen Block in Jury Duty Season 2, Bonus Episode 2. Our analysis of Kathy Durst's friend Fadwa Najami's testimony is in Season 2, Episode 6, and we hear the impact of Lorraine Newman's testimony on two of the trial jurors in Season 2, Bonus Episode 22. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. 
Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.